Good morning, everyone. It's great to be back here, uh, second week. You know, I was telling the earlier service that uh, they say with guest preachers, it's a good sign if you're invited back the second week. It means you didn't mess up too bad the first week. So I'm glad to be here, and I just want to express my gratitude to Hawaii Kai uh, Church and just being able to serve you in this way and for you extending your love to me and my family. We are richly blessed and so encouraged by what the Lord is doing here at this church. Well, if you have God's Word, please turn to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 9. We're picking up where we left off last week in the two weeks that I'm here. Deuteronomy chapter 9. It is 29 verses, but I want to read all of it to you in the most sermonic-like form that I can as Moses was preaching this uh, to the Israelites right at the cusp of conquering the land. Deuteronomy chapter 9, and may God plant his eternal word deep into your heart. Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, great cities fortified to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly, just as the Lord has spoken to you. Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know then it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he would have destroyed you. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord had made with you, then I remained on the mountain forty days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. The Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written by the finger of God, and on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken with you at the mountain from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. It came about at the end of 40 days and nights that the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down from here quickly, for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them, they have made a molten image for themselves. The Lord spoke further to me, saying, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned, came down from the mountain, while the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I saw that you had indeed sinned against the Lord your God, you had made for yourselves a molten calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord had commanded you. I took hold of the two tablets and threw them down from my hands and smashed them before your eyes. And I fell down before the Lord, as at the first forty days and nights I neither ate bread nor drank water. 
because of all your sin, which you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was wrathful against you in order to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him, so I also prayed for Aaron at the same time. I took your sinful thing, the calf which you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw its dust into the brook that came down from the mountain. And again at Taborah and at Massa and at Kibroth Hatava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. When the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and possess the land which I have given you, then you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You neither believed him nor listened to his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. Verse 25. So I fell down before the Lord the 40 days and nights, which I did because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy your people, even your inheritance, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not look at the stubbornness of this people or at the wickedness or their sin. Otherwise, the land from which you brought us may say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land which he had promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. Yet they are your people, even your inheritance, whom you have brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. Amen. Let's pray to the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have revealed your word to us. Your word is like a mirror to our hearts. It reveals to us who we really are. And Spirit of God, we pray that you would convict us of our sin, of righteousness and judgment, and lead us again to be amazed by the grace that you have provided in your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You know, we're all familiar with the hymn Amazing Grace. And of all the songs that are written, this one was recorded the greatest number of times by the greatest number of vocal artists and for good reason. Now, this well-known hymn by John Newton has been expressed in different hymns that we love to sing as well. The great English hymn writers Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley also wrote on this theme. Watts reflected on love so amazing, so divine. And Wesley, who seems to have written virtually a hymn a day in his spare time, taught the church to sing the words that we sung earlier, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And much later, Charles Gabriel confessed, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. We can never reflect too much on God's grace. It is the most amazing thing in the universe. Being amazed by God's grace is a sign of spiritual vitality. One sure way that you know that you are growing as a Christian is that you find the grace of God that it continues to astonish and amaze. But yet, like all familiar things, we frequently take grace for granted. We lose the ability to be enthralled by grace. We think of course God is gracious, or of course we deserve His grace. After all, are we not His people? Now, we may never say these things, but when we think like this, the grace of God ceases to be amazing, and sadly, it also ceases to be grace. 
a chief reason for the weakness of the Christian church today, the poverty of our witness, and any lack of vitality in worship probably lies right here. We sing about amazing grace, and we speak of amazing grace, but far too often it ceases to amaze us. Sadly, we might truthfully sing of a custom grace. Or as J.I. Packer has observed, amazing grace for many people has become boring grace. We have lost the joy and the energy that are experienced when grace seems truly amazing. How can that be? How can a doctrine that has thrilled Christians for centuries be thought boring? You know, if you talk to church people about politics, about that Tesla guy buying out Twitter, you will get people talking. Bring up the latest NBA playoff games and the NFL draft, and guys will get excited. Ask if they watch the latest episode of whatever Netflix show is on and the latest celebrity gossip and hearts will be fluttering. Even bring up the topic of food and this new place you tried out last night and there will be a robust discussion on good food. But try to discuss the grace of God and you will soon discover that you are speaking of a topic that doesn't quite interest many. It's not that the topic will be contradicted, it will be surely affirmed. But it's simply that one will not have much to contribute to the topic. One will not be excited to talk about it. Well, if I can borrow Michael Horton's title of his book, I want us to put amazing back into grace as we look at this section together. And it's the sheer grace of God in giving Israel the land that is the clear theme of this section. The focus of this section is that the inheritance that Israel was to receive was not because she deserves it or has somehow earned it. It is solely by the grace of God. And so in order to put amazing back into grace, I want us to consider four components that we see in our text. The first thing to consider is the righteousness of God. I believe that we fail to be amazed by God's grace because our ideas of righteousness are completely different from God's idea of righteousness. This is what the beginning of chapter 9 teaches, that the basic failure of the Israelites is that they're so pleased with their own righteousness that it blinds them to the righteousness of God. Moses begins this section with a call of attention, hear, O Israel. It's a way that the preacher says, look up, listen. It's a solemn charge designed to grab the attention of the covenant people. Moses then repeats a theme that has already been covered in the book. Israel is ready to cross the Jordan and to conquer Canaan, yet the nations of the land are formidable opponents. Great cities fortified to heaven, a great people, tall. But then comes this rhetorical question, who can stand before the sons of Anak? And the answer to this rhetorical question is obvious. That in terms of human power, no one can. And this all sets up in verse 3, in no uncertain terms, Moses declares to Israel that it is the Lord your God who is crossing before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you. Moses then envisions Israel driving out the Canaanites and destroying them. But he warns that this euphoria of victory is likely to produce a moral self-congratulations. After the dust settles, Moses keenly foresees Israel saying in their hearts in verse 4, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. 
Notice in verse 4 that Moses doesn't imagine Israel actually mouthing these words. He says, do not say in your hearts. It's the same way Moses warns of Israel's material success and prosperity back in chapter 8, verse 17. You may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. Here we learn that there are many things which men and women would not dare utter with their lips, which they still speak in their hearts. Much like Psalm 14:1, where it says, the fool has said, what? In his heart, there is no God. But no rational man will be a fool to say with his lips. Here, Moses reveals what often goes on in our hearts, though we actually may never say it out loud. We may say that we are saved by grace alone, but in our hearts, we may say, by my righteousness alone. And just as in prosperity and wealth and success, we attribute that to our own abilities and powers. So in spiritual matters, we strangely believe that it is our self-righteousness that the Lord is so pleased enough to save us. Charles Simeon, the old British minister, said it like this. He says, men think to get to heaven by their own righteousness and hope like the Israelites in Canaan to make the very mercy of God himself a pedestal for their own fame. Human nature is like that. Human nature is such that when God acts on our behalf, we presume that we have earned or merited God's favor. Human nature is full of pride. Now, to the self-righteous Israelites, Moses said this. Look at verse 5. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers. Look at verse 6. Know then it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord is giving you this good land, for you are a stubborn people. No less than three times in the short space of our text does God declare that it is not because of their righteousness. It was rather to God's covenant to their fathers and the wickedness of the Canaanites that the Lord has given the land to Israel. Our appreciation of God's grace is diminished because our meaning of righteousness is completely different from God's. You see, God's righteousness is his very nature. For God is righteous, just as God is love. God's righteousness is what he is. It's associated with this holiness. This is what God sets God, uh, sets God apart and utterly unlike us. His righteousness is perfect. Human righteousness, on the other hand, is not in our nature. But it is merely a social quality achieved by trying to avoid any gross sins or trying to accumulate outward good deeds. And therefore, no matter how much one tries to accumulate good deeds, it can never add up to the divine righteousness that God requires of us. And you can see clearly in our text how the Israelites were satisfied with their own righteousness, convincing themselves that the victory was based on their performance. You know, this is like a woman dying of some disease, saying that she is sure that everything is all right because her face looks good when she puts on a little makeup. Now, I have no doubt that a dying woman might look a lot better with some makeup, especially if she is very sick, but it is utter foolishness to trust the makeup and fail to see a doctor if there is any chance that the doctor can detect the disease and cure it. 
Yet this is exactly the folly of the Israelites and of our human nature. Millions of spiritually dying people are willingly ignorant of their true condition. And instead, they put their efforts to paint over the surface of theirs with human morality. Some do it with charitable giving. Others do it with church attendance or service. Still others do it with upright morality. They suppose these acts of righteousness earns the favor or adds up to God's righteousness. And because they are satisfied with what they have done, they suppose that God must be satisfied too. But suppose like the Israelites, you were satisfied with your righteousness. And suppose God would say to you, well, go on then without my help. You have done so much for yourselves. Carry on the good work with you. You have overcome Satan. Why don't you continue to overcome him by yourself? You have paid a price for heaven. Complete your purchase. Why don't you bring with you your works to my judgment seat, and I will deal with you according to them? Friends, what would become of us if God were to give us up to our proud delusions and self-deceits? Wouldn't we appear what we are? Wouldn't we regret ever being satisfied with our own righteousness? Wouldn't we feel utterly foolish for even saying in our hearts that it was my righteousness? Well, thankfully, this is not how God dealt with these Israelites. Instead, God made known his power to execute his justice and righteousness that he had decreed in the wickedness of the Canaanites. Yet another component we must keep in mind to put amazing back into grace is to consider the sinfulness of sin. Christian, the more you know the sinfulness of sin, the sweeter Christ will become in your life. The deeper you know your sin, the higher appreciation will be for the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 6, Moses, he lists out the reasons for Yahweh giving the land, and he gives three of them. The first is the wickedness of the Canaanites, The second is a promise that he made with their ancestors. But third, Moses saves the most devastating argument for last. Moses declares that far from claiming any superior righteousness as their fundamental quality, the Israelites are intrinsically stubborn like an ox. They are stiff-necked. These are two Hebrew words that literally mean hard of neck. It's a graphic metaphor that pictures the hard unbending neck of a stubborn animal that refuses to cooperate or submit to its master's wishes. And in order to prove Israel's sinfulness of sin and how stiff-necked they were, from verses 7 to 24, Moses provides some glaring examples of them in the wilderness. In fact, verses 7 and 24 are framed by these two statements, you have been rebellious against the Lord. These two verses mirror and bracket this section. The people are saying, God has given us this land as a reward for our superior righteousness. Moses responds, no, no, no. As long as I've known you, you've been rebellious to God. And Moses goes for the jugular example in verse 8, reminding them of the golden calf incident. This was by far the most outrageous act of rebellion and sinfulness in the wilderness. Now, this is obviously not a full recounting of that incident. Moses is making the point of Israel's sinfulness and how any thoughts of moral superiority should be abandoned at once. I want you to see how he sets this up. From verses 9 to 11, 
Moses describes this monumental event where he went up to the mountain to receive the word of God. This is where Moses received the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Yahweh was the main actor here. He cut and gave and wrote and spoke, and he gave again. This is a marvelous, awe-inspiring event in which God made a covenant with Israel, and he revealed to them his very law. These laws were spoken, and it was written by the Lord himself. But a question looms. As these wondrous events were unfolding on the top of the mountain, what was Israel doing at the foot of the mountain? No sooner was the law given than broken. The key word in verse 12 is quickly. That is, right after the law had been spoken to them, they quickly turned aside from the way which the Lord commanded them and made the golden calf. Moses gives us a abbreviated version, but we know from Exodus, if you read it, that God first revealed the law and the Israelites, they knew the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. They knew the second commandment, you shall not make for yourselves an idol. And they agreed to keep it. But what did the Israelites do? They quickly turned aside from the way and made molten images for themselves. Now, we may scoff and distance ourselves from these Hebrews who made a golden calf and think how outrageous it was for them to do so. But let us remember 1 Corinthians 10, 6, which says, Now these things happen as examples for us so that we will not crave evil things as they also crave. 1 Corinthians 10, 6 is specifically referring to what the Israelites did when Aaron made the golden calf, what they ought what they did ought to serve as a warning to us because we are tempted to commit the same sins. How easy it is for us to tell God that we'll never do something ever again and then go right ahead and do it. This is especially true with sins of addiction. You know, sex addicts say they will never engage in sexual activities, but the next thing they know, they're right back to what they're doing, if not worse. Gluttons tell God they'll stop overeating and they'll go right again to another binge. Drug, uh, drug addicts and drunks swear they've had their last drink. They really mean it this time. But sadly, they fall off again. Why do people do this? Why are people like this? You know, in one way or another, we all struggle to overcome habitual sins. We keep getting tempted to commit the same sins over and over again. And the reason that we struggle is that sin is in our hearts. We are willing rebels. John 3, 19, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Loving darkness is what is natural to us. We want and choose darkness, and we do not, and therefore refuse the light. And we happily skip along the broad road that leads to destruction. Why did the Israelites worship a cow? Well, because they had never entirely forsaken the gods of Egypt. You see, they promised to worship the Lord and to give themselves to Him, but in their hearts, they still cherished their old idolatries. One of the early church fathers, he wisely commented that the absence of Moses simply gave the Israelites an opportunity to worship openly what they had been worshiping in their hearts. They didn't need someone to tempt them with an idol. 
They simply produce one out of the wickedness of their hearts. That's how sinful our hearts are. You see, sin is not so much what we do as what we are. Now, although Moses interceded on their behalf, this memory still grieved him. Their rebelliousness should be a constant warning to them not to be under any illusions about their own righteousness. And this message is clear, both to them and to us. Never underestimate human sinfulness. How opposite and contrary is sin to the blessed God. God is light, sin is darkness. God is life and sin is death. God is heaven and sin is hell. God is beauty and sin is deformity. God is pure and sin is polluted. One of the great tragedies of our contemporary culture is that we have lost any concept of any exceeding sinfulness of sin. No wonder then the grace is not amazing to us anymore. Thomas Watson, a beloved, beloved Puritan, wrote, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Unless you see the blackness of your heart, you will never see the beauty of Jesus Christ. Beloved, you must know the bitterness of sin before you can know the blessedness of grace. And may I say it this way, you must taste hell before you can swallow heaven. And the reality is that not only are the Israelites not worthy of receiving the land of promise because of the sinfulness of their sin, but what they truly deserve is death and destruction. And the only reason they don't get what they deserve is the sovereign grace of the Lord. But several times in our text, we see that what Israel deserved is justice from the judgment of God. And here's a third component in putting amazing back into grace, the judgment of God. In verse 7, Moses tells Israel to remember and not to forget how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. Then look at verse 8. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he would have destroyed you. Then in verse 14, the Lord says, let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name under heaven. Then again in verse 22, at Taborah and Massa and Kibroth Hatava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. God's wrath is repeated throughout Moses' sermon. Now you need to understand something about God's wrath. God's wrath is not like man's. It's not like a bad uh, temper tantrum. It's neither spite nor malice nor animosity. It is not a personal whim based on his mood. It is not an anger that lashes out and then forgets about it. God's wrath is constant, inevitable. It's a growing judgment to all that is opposed to his holiness and righteousness. The word wrath comes from the root meaning to grow ripe for something. And it indicates God's gradually building and intensifying judgment upon sin. That's what makes God's wrath so frightening. Moses is not thinking of this uncontrolled burst of angry passion on God's part. Rather, his wrath points to the, God's constant displeasure and hatred against sin in which he will unleash his, the fuel, fury of wrath to all who have rejected and sinned against him. You know, I read a story in a book of how the story of the prodigal son was told to some hood rats in Glasgow. And by hood rats, I mean some mischievous kids. 
And Glasgow was one of those cities in Scotland that was known to be ghetto. It was a very industrial city. And the city was run down. And the story was told in a time when a lot of rough hood rat kids roamed the streets of that city. And a group of them were gathered together. And a Bible study teacher was telling the story of the prodigal son. And he spoke about the prodigal and how he took his father's inheritance and left. He spoke about how the elder son remained. And as he told the story of the part when the prodigal son squandered all the money, lived with the pigs, and he came to his cells and came to his father. And as he reached the climax of the prodigal son, having come to his senses and now coming to the father, he asked that little class, now what do you think the father will do to that child? And of course, the Bible study teacher wanted to stress the fact that the father loved the son so much that as soon as he saw the son returning, he ran down the road and hugged him and kissed his neck. But as he asked the question, what do you think the father will do to that child? One little boy who was used to that hood rat kind of life said, bash him. That's what the father would do to the son who returned. Now, see, we assume that the boy deserves grace and that the father owes the son forgiveness and love, but that little boy was right. Justice must be satisfied. Sin must be punished. God must bash us for our sins, and that's the price that sin demands. The God of all the earth does right, as Abram testifies, Genesis 18, should not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Should we not take Psalm 711 more seriously that God judgeth the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day? Or should we not take heed to Paul's writing in Romans 2.5? Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. You know, I am struck by the vast difference between Moses' preaching and a contemporary preaching today. Today's preaching is deficient in many points, but there is no point in which today's preaching is more inadequate and contrary to the preaching of Moses and even the New Testament than in its neglect, in, its, in the wrath of God. The wrath of God is either an unimportant doctrine, which Christians should ignore from the pulpit, or it is something entirely wrong, which Christians should quickly abandon. I mean, those are the two, only two conclusions I could think of for why the wrath of God is not preached on the pulpit. It is a glaring weakness in contemporary pulpits. And again, we ask, is it any wonder that grace is not amazing anymore? Without a right understanding of the judgment of God against sin, there can be no appreciation for the grace that saves us from that fierce judgment. But where is mercy to be found? If God's wrath, according to Romans 2.5, is a righteous judgment, and his wrath is fully deserved by the Israelites and us, how can it be possibly avoided since we are sinners fully deserving of God's wrath? Why didn't God just come and destroy the Israelites right then and there? Because God provided an intercessor. And here's a fourth component we must consider in our text to put amazing back into grace. I say that God provided an intercessor because there are little hints of God's grace even in this threat of judgment. You see, it was never God's purpose to destroy the Israelites, 
but only to save them. And in order to save them, an intercessor was needed between the Israelites and God. And as deserving as Israel was to receive the judgment of God, God was intent on showing his grace to them. Let me show you this in the text of these little hints of grace. First, there was a simple fact that God commanded Moses to go down. Verse, look at verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, arise, go down. Now, arise, go down. Those words may pass over us quickly upon a surface level reading. But upon closer inspection, we realize that if the Lord really intended to destroy the Israelites, then why send Moses down at all? The answer is that he was planning to save them through the intercession of their mediator. The Lord was showing grace by sending Moses to pray for their forgiveness. But here's a second little hint of grace. Notice that in verse 12, the Lord seems as if he is distancing himself from the Israelites. He says to Moses, go down from here quickly for not my people, the Lord says, but your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. Now, if I had been Moses, I would have said, I didn't bring them out, Lord, you did. But you see, the Lord was trying to help Moses identify with the Israelites because there's a sense in which they were his people because Moses was their spiritual representative before God. But here's the biggest hint of God's gracious intent, and it comes in his response to Moses begging him to leave alone in verse 14. Let me read this verse in full. Verse 14, the Lord says, let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. The important phrase here is leave me alone, which makes this sound as if God is like some sulking child, but this is misleading. God is really asking for permission. You see, as the mediator, Moses stands between God and his people, and God will not proceed to punish Israel unless the prophet allows him to do this. So while, it, while in begging Moses to leave him alone, that he might give full vent to his fury, paradoxically, the Lord actually opens the door for his intervention. You see, he was pushing Moses to get involved. He was pushing Moses to intercede for his people. Let me alone that I may consume them. That effect is God himself leaving the door open for intercession. He allows himself to be persuaded. That is what a mediator is for. Now, perhaps an analogy might be helpful to clarify this point. I want you to think of the way parents might relate. Frustrated parents might try to get a child to stop leaving the toys all over the house. The parent might say, all right, go ahead. Leave your toys on the floors. It's okay. I'll clean them up. I'll clean them up for you as soon as I get my trash can. Now, is the parent serious? Will the toys be actually thrown away? Well, no child is going to wait to find out, which is exactly the point. The parent in this situation is trying to get the child to take responsibility for the toys. This is a similar tactic that I use for my youngest son, D'Angelo, who always gives us a hard time eating his food. I threaten to give him a meme. It's the Korean equivalent of a little spanking. And when I threaten him that, he immediately says, no meme, no meme, and he begins to take a bite. God was doing the same thing with this prophet. I want you to notice, too, how the Lord proposed to start all over with Moses. He says, I will make of you, Moses, a nation mightier and greater than they. 
Now, if you had been Moses, how would you have responded? I think I would have been tempted to say, that's a good idea, Lord. I'm tired of these people myself. After 40 frustrating years, I've had enough. Let's start over and begin with me. And actually, if Moses had accepted the Lord's response, we wouldn't be talking about the Israelites today. We would be talking about the Moshites or the Mosesites. For it would be Moses' descendants who would have taken over the plan and program of God. But Moses did not call for Israel's demise, nor did he accept God's offer to start all over with him. Rather, he interceded on her behalf. And from verses 25 to 29, we reach the words that stood between God's anger and God's mercy, the intercessory prayer of Moses. Now, there is much that we can learn from Moses' prayer and how we ought to pray to our Heavenly Father, claiming the very promises of God and the character of God as the basis for our confidence when we pray to Him. I mean, what confidence we can have in prayer as Moses did. What I want you to see is how God's judgment was averted through the intercession of Moses. Chapters 10, 1 to 11 tell us that the Lord listened to Moses' prayer by rewriting the tablets. God's grace is seen here in providing his people with an intercessor. As Moses was spending 40 days and 40 nights with Yahweh, he understood more than anyone of God's holy nature of his wrath and judgment and he also understood the promises that he made with them. Moses' concern was not for himself or for his own glory. His concern was preserving and protecting the name of God. Moses even demonstrated extreme love for his people, even to the point of being willing to trade places with them, Exodus 32 tells us. And while God was the ultimate source of Israel's salvation, he saved them through the provision of an intercessor in Moses. Now, Moses' intercessory work anticipates and points to the gracious provision that God would make in sending a mediator in his own beloved son, Jesus Christ. And how much greater is Jesus' work of mediation Whereas Moses was willing to trade places with Israel and willing to give his life for the sins of God's people, his life could not atone for their sins. Yet Jesus' life and death was efficacious in all respects because he was the Son of God dwelt in the flesh. And moreover, whereas Moses' intercession was intermittent, it was temporary, Christ's intercession is perpetual. It is forever it is eternal. Hebrews 7.25 tells us, therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he has always lives to make intercession for them. And Jesus does not need to go up to the mountain in order to carry it out, because the apostle Paul says, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who always intercedes for us. Indeed, Jesus is also the mediator of a better covenant. Our reveling in God's grace would be increased 
if we pondered on the intercession of Christ. Oh, beloved, how sweet the sound of God's amazing grace in providing for us the perfect intercessor, Jesus Christ, whom our Heavenly Father always listens to. You know, this whole section in Deuteronomy in chapter 9 is really the story of our own salvation, isn't it? And it tells of how you can be saved from your sins. God is up on his holy mountain, and we are here down on earth. And like the Israelites, we are living in a cesspool of sin. We are guilty, and we've all rebelled against God. And we have our own versions of worshiping a golden calf, money, sex, power, pride and reputation, health and wealth. And like, and like the Israelites, we, what we deserve is not grace but God's wrath. What we need is someone like Moses. We need someone who can intercede for us, someone who can turn away God's wrath. And God, in his marvelous grace, provided that mediator, 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It is as if God the Father said to Jesus, like he did to Moses, Go down, Jesus. Go down from here quickly. Go down because your people, the ones I gave you from all eternity, have become corrupt. They are living in sin. They have turned away from my law and have worshipped other gods. And unless you intercede for them, they will surely be destroyed by my wrath. And thank God that Jesus did come down. He came down as the Lamb of God, and he spilled his blood on the cross, and he bore the wrath for sinners like us. Friend, if you're here and not a Christian, I plead with you to consider where you stand before God. Consider the perfect righteousness of God, that no matter how much you try to do, it will never measure up to God's righteousness. And then go on to consider the sinfulness of sin. That is not how evil the sins you have committed in the past or how much you have committed. It's that sin is in your hearts. But don't stop there. Consider how the wages of sin is death, eternal death. The tiniest infraction is fully deserving of God's eternal wrath. And what you desperately need then is an intercessor, someone who can stand in your place, someone who can take your sins upon himself and bore it on, the wrath, on, on God's wrath. God has provided this both in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the message of the good news. It's a message of grace that is all has been done. There is nothing for you to do but to believe it. So would you now repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Grace and mercy is only found in Jesus. Come then to him. Righteousness of God, sinfulness of sin, the judgment of God, God's provision of an intercessor. When we consider these four basic truths, can there be a sweeter sound than amazing grace in the sinner's ears? Let us marvel together again at God's grace. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, thank you for lavishing us with your grace, that even though we were dead in our transgressions and sins, by nature children of God, wrath, God, in your great mercy and love, you have made us alive together with Christ. Thank you for sending us 
your perfect mediator and your son, Jesus Christ, whom you always listen to. Thank you for the cross and his resurrection and the finished work of Christ, for it is the only way that your wrath can be satisfied. Lord, we stand amazed again in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and we pray that in all our days we will continually be amazed and astonished by this amazing grace you have provided for us. In his name we pray. Amen.